Hello and welcome to the Talk from Pelaban, a podcast where we chat about the most relevant topics for the banking industry in Latin America. I am Barbara Pianese, Latin America editor at The Banker, and in this episode we will discuss how fintechs are disrupting the market and how banks are responding. We will also touch upon the latest regulatory changes across the region. Finally, we will focus on sustainable finance. My guests today are Alejandro Garcia, Regional Group Head for Financial Institutions, Latin America at Fitch, Carla Bermeo, Director, Regional Head for Latin America and the Caribbean, TD Securities, David Goschmidt, Vice President, Head of Cross-Border Real-Time Payments, Mastercard, Mauricio Zuluaga, Liquidity Management Director, Citi for Latin America, Germana Cruz, CEO and Head for Financial Institutions, LATAM, Standard Chartered, and Martin Spicer, Regional Director for Latin America at IFC. A lot of fintechs are disrupting the banking space, and there is always a question if they are seen really as a competitors by banks. And I really ask the point of view of Alejandro and David here. I, I would say there are two different trends that we're anticipating in the current environment. You know, most of the fintechs, uh, I would say almost half of the fintechs that are currently operating in Latin America, they are focused on two main uh, business lines. They are either focused on payments, like transaction-based uh, sort of fintechs, and the others are like focused on either lending, uh, deposit takers, or a combination of both. So those two business lines account for almost half of the fintechs that, that are op currently operating in the region. And I would say we're anticipating two different paths for them. The ones focused on facilitating like electronic payments and ensuring that there's like uh, further access to these uh, digital digital platforms for the, the uh, broader segments of the population, especially those that haven't necessarily been formally banked in the past. I would say those should continue to grow because again, there's a, there's a clear economic benefit for that. Those fintechs are virtually reducing, if not eliminating, the very high fees that uh, customers have paid in the past. Uh, so that's something that will very likely continue to happen and continue to develop across the region, but I would say particularly in some of the major economies that have already been like uh, seeing a pace of change relatively material, such as Brazil, Mexico, Chile, to a lesser extent, others like Colombia, Peru, and so on. So I would say we don't see any major headwinds for those fintechs that are like uh, focused on, on facilitating electronic payments. The story is a little bit different when it comes to those that are more focused on either lendings, lending or deposit taking, because obviously this current environment of increased risk aversion, high interest rates, high credit spreads, it's virtually exacerbating the or putting additional pressure on the overall environment that those fintechs are facing. So I think they are on there in uh, amidst material challenges to demonstrate that they do have like a robust, resilient, and sustainable business profile. So I think in this current environment, probably those ones are going to see like a, some sort of slowdown or at least some obstacles in terms of their development. But that could also prove like an opportunity for the traditional banks that have also been investing heavily. You know, there are some, some banks that have their own digital platforms like in Mexico, Colombia, Brazil. There are banks that already have like very strong digital platforms. In some cases, they do have like a separate bank, a legal entity that 
that it's entirely focused on digital operations. And that's something that will, will continue to happen. So I think there are good prospects when it comes to the retail sector, because obviously the, the more massive products are the ones that could be further enhanced through digital platforms. But again, I think it's worth to keep an eye on the challenge imposed by the higher cost of funds and, and the higher risk aversion that we're seeing in the market. Without a doubt, the best that thing that can happen for our ecosystem is that there is partnerships. And this is because each of these institutions bring different things to the table, right? So what um, we at MasterCard happen to work with fintechs and banks and non-banks. So you can clearly see what are their strengths, right? So um, banks have typically a set of very reliable customers, right, um, that are going for them for many, many years, and they've built these entrenched relationships with them, uh, where we're, they're offering them their basic financial needs. Then fintechs come in, and they are offering very nimble solutions to problems um, that, given banks' complexities, um, in some instances, is very difficult for a bank to achieve it, right? Banks have these core banking, like, very heavy machines that if you want to add anything else on top of it, it could take years, multi-million dollar projects. Think it is more like a technological problem or is it more like a uh, like mentality? It's both. <laughs> it's both. That, that, that's my second point yeah. that I was going to mention is um, technology, combining the two is great because you can layer one on top of the other, right? So you can have the fintech technologically wise. Fintech, try to do as many of the tasks that would take very long and would be very costly for the bank. And banks to leverage their base, right, and, and their reliability. But mentality is also super important. Because fintechs, in many, many cases, it's crazy. I mean, I, I get to see it and leave it, right? So you, you see the, the CEOs of these fintechs, who are people that are very well off. And they're working insane hours, right? It's, it's crazy. They're like, they're like, their life depends on it. So in, and not, not every fintech, but in general, you see, that, you see that dynamic where there is that push. There is the push, there is the, we have to make this happen. It, it's our life, our life depends on it. So from a mentality perspective, I think uh, on one hand, the fintech pushing for the acceleration and, and readiness and results, but the banks bring, bring a level of discipline that fintechs maybe could learn from. Uh, banks have very structured processes, especially in cross-border payments. When you're talking about compliance, you have to ensure you're doing things well because you want to get make sure that you're not getting into trouble, that everything is according to the law. So I think making sure that you're leveraging both mentally and technology, the benefits of these two, bring perfect harmony. Carla had some thoughts in terms of the most active markets with regards to digitalization. Well, we see um, maybe the, the markets with uh, very high, um, and I would say very interesting developments in the fintech space. I would say the most active have been in Brazil, Colombia, Mexico. Um, but when we talk about digitalization, we need to also talk about regulation because it goes hand in hand. Uh, we see Brazil, for example, that is, is a market that has experienced tremendous growth and innovation in this space. Actually, that innovation has been supported by one of the most comprehensive frameworks in, the, in terms of fintech regulation in the, in the region. As, as a recent update, actually, which is positive news for, for the Brazilian market, uh, the Brazilian regulator actually updated uh, the, 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 the framework, uh, in this case, aligning capital requirements with the size and the complexity 
of the players in the fintech space, which is positive news because it helps to mitigate systemic risk while still uh, supporting uh, and encouraging innovation. So what is going to be, for example, the, the impact on the fintech? In Brazil. They will have to um, increase capitalization uh, ratios, but uh, from what they have read and the discussions with clients, we don't expect that actually that could be an issue. And, uh, and I don't know if something similar is also happening in Colombia or Mexico that are the also very active market. In Colombia was the very interesting news. Recently we see uh, one of the first um, domestic e-banks in the country, um, which is, is really good news. Recently, Mexican non-financial institutions Unifin and Credit Real defaulted. I asked Alejandro if this will have an impact on other non-financial institutions in the region. I, we, we still believe that these are kind of isolated events, companies that were jeopardized precisely because of relatively aggressive uh, financial or business management. So they were like either growing aggressively or they were kind of aggressive in terms of how they managed their capital adequacy, leverage, or their funding plans. Obviously, everything was going okay when the market was doing okay. But when we faced the much tougher uh, market scrutiny and, again, this in, uh, expanded risk aversion, clearly their funding profiles and, and their funding alternatives were kind of shut down, and that's where they faced these liquidity issues. I think the, the positive story is that there has been a lesson for other MBFIs, not only in Mexico, there are a few others also in Colombia, in Chile, in Brazil, and, and elsewhere. So they they have learned that there's they need to plan with a long-term view, and especially thinking about the possibility of facing very sudden uh, unexpected negative circumstances in the in the uh, in the funding alternatives. So I think most of the other companies are gradually taking care of these. They are focusing on addressing like uh, a material tenor asset liability mismatches that they could have, on ensuring that they do have a good and diversified uh, al uh, funding alternatives at hand. But it's also worth emphasizing that under the current environment. Uh, those companies that are more exposed to wholesale funding, they will clearly be under more severe market scrutiny. They will continue to face like a, a, a tough, a tough environment going ahead. You might recall when I mentioned that one of the strengths for banks is that the very ample and stable base of core customer deposits. Well, clearly that's not the case for MBFIs, uh, in which the funding typically comes, you know, from bank facilities, market-driven uh, funds, and that's why they need to be very careful and to keep going with this strategy of demonstrating the market that they are very careful about their overall solvency and liquidity management yeah, profiles. Yeah. Carla elaborated also on the move to alternative offer rates for banks. So um, the, the global financial markets have traditionally based on what we call interbank offer rates that were credit sensitive rates. And after we see some um, events affecting the credibility of the LIBOR rate, in particular in the US dollar space, we saw the regulators around the world um, design the transition towards a different type of rates, which are non-credit sensitive in nature, than call oh, alternative me, the, the Which regulator is it like? Uh, uh, For the different yeah. currencies, and in the US that would be the Fed, mm -hmm. and we have a committee called, called ARC that basically drove this transition. So if we talk about um, the U.S. dollar market, which is a significant market in internationally in general, but also for Latin American uh, markets, the, this uh, transition evolved to go from LIBOR 
to um, the ARC selected rate, which is SOFR, or Secure Overnight Financing Rate. And that was a significant challenge for, for global markets. And what we saw is that derivative markets basically embrace and are working under um, the SOFR, daily SOFR compounder rate. But for cash markets, which is basically our main activity in the Latin American region, specifically in the trade finance space with bilateral lending, and also affecting other spaces of the financial markets like um, business loans and uh, syndications. So there was the need to have a rate that was predictable, that was forward-looking, and that's how the term of our rate was, de was developed, and that's the rate that cash markets have adopted. So we saw um, Latin American financial institutions successfully transitioning to this new um, uh, environment in terms of, in this case, SOFR. And I'm very happy to mention as an example, we have been working very closely with our clients. As early in 2019, TD Securities was the first bank structuring an SOFR-based transaction in the Latin American markets, and we work very closely with um, two large financial institutions in the region. And our intention was, of course, to, um, to learn together to our with our clients and to develop our capabilities uh, applying this new rate. And what is the um, I don't know, concrete changes that uh, this new environment is going to bring up for uh, Latin American banks? Well, I think that in terms of the adoption of terms so far was very significant because particularly corporate clients and commercial clients, they need um, a rate that allows them to have predictability of cash flows and also is easy to operate. And terms so far was developed because it's a forward-looking term rate, so it's easier to transition versus the, the overnight rate. We then discussed it with Germana about the new FX law in Brazil, which will be active from January 2033. Brazil has been trying to refresh the law. It was an old law, so everybody would uh, complain that Brazil is too cumbersome to do FX transactions. And, and also uh, saying that this was one of the reasons that fintechs were very successful in Brazil, because to do an FX transaction through a bank demands a lot of paperwork, a lot of uh, uh, registers, the registrations that the banks need to do, which the fintechs were not forced to do it because they're not a bank, right? So what the central bank seeing that, they launched um, some requests for the community. Uh, they got a lot of feedbacks from the industry in general. And now January 1st, 23, we have a new law, uh, which is trying to flexibilize in the way uh, the banks uh, have to, to perform DFX transactions. But one important topic that I would like to mention is that first time the central bank is defining how crypto transactions, crypto FX transactions should be registered. So it provides some comfort to international banks like Standard Charter uh, on how the supervision is being done in those assets. You probably saw some of these uh, FX uh, uh, firms being, you know, uh, chapter asking for Chapter 11 last week. So it, it affects the consumers, it affects the people. So for the first time, uh, we noticed that the central bank realized that this is here to, to stay, is not uh, anything that they can prohibit, but they can bring that to with more transparency. And this is a positive point for local banks and also for international banks uh, like Standard Chartered. Okay, and otherwise, always talking about regulations, there is also a new regulation that has been discussed in, in Chile about the pension reform, and yes. uh, I understand it is as a link with the banking 
sector. Correct. I don't know if you can elaborate on this. Sure, I can. Yes, um, the 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 new Chilean government uh, launched um, a proposal to the Congress uh, in order to implement a reform uh, in the pension plans they have in the country. And some banks are expecting that this will open the doors for the existing entities that manage those funds, uh, decide to not continue doing the new format, and then banks can be allowed to manage that and be part of that flow. So uh, even having what looks like a rupture, which looks like a change, it can open the doors for other players, including the banks. So the Chilean banks are very positive looking at that and expecting how the Congress will approve and see if they, there is an opportunity for them to have a role uh, in this market, which is huge in Chile. And, uh, the pension there manage a lot of money and then uh, banks will have access to also provide products and at the end uh, uh, be uh, more profitable to the individuals that are part of the plan. And is this something uh, similar already happening in, in other countries in Latin America? No, or no, this is only Chile. Okay, so we maybe can have an effect on other we can, Yes, exactly, you're right. So depending on, on how good it is and how well received it is, we can see this being replicated in other countries in Latin America. The transition to a more sustainable finance is an hot topic, and I asked Carla and Martin what is happening in Latin America. This is a global challenge that is a significant challenge, but also creates significant opportunities. And I think Latin American markets are very well positioned in terms of the, the resources that the region has um, and uh, the commitment of the largest financial institutions in the region to transition to a low carbon environment. Many of them are participating in the Net Zero Alliance and have expressed commitments to, to be uh, carbon neutral by 2050. Now, something very important, and this is my personal opinion in terms of the transition Latin America needs to embrace. I don't believe this transition for Latin America uh, should be successful if we just see it from a pure extractive perspective. Because the only thing that will happen is that we will have new mining frontiers. Is that right? And I don't believe that's the spirit of this, of this transition and the opportunity is not there as well. So the main opportunity and the main challenge we see for the region is rather transformational in terms of decarbonizing the um, uh, production systems in the region and also to develop green technology and green initiatives. Uh, which is the role of financial institutions in financing uh, this transition? Well, financing institutions are at the center of their transition. And the, one of the elements is that we uh, work with all um, segments in the economic chain. Is that right? We work with institutional players, with corporate players, commercial players, service providers. But also we cannot transition alone. The financial system needs transition with the clients. So that's, uh, uh, you know, it's very important the cooperation and the communication we have with the clients to transition together. Um, the capital required for this transition is tremendous. And then also is uh, the, their financial institutions have also a very important role to play. Something interesting to mention in Latin America, and I mean for markets around the globe, is that a portion of the financing needed for this transition would be denominated in hard currency. But a very large portion would be denominated in, in domestic currency. Particularly we see the need for transforming and the um, and the um, economic system uh, towards a low carbon environment, since this would be domestic investments. Uh, and it's very yeah, interesting. Do you have a, an example about that? Yes. 
It's very interesting to see, for example, and rather in the public sector in this case, in Chile, the Ministry of Finance in Chile issued an ESG-linked bond that I believe is one of the first transactions in the sovereign space um, targeting this issue. And another bond um, that was issued that was is very interesting because it's denominated in CLP um, was very successful, although financial conditions were difficult. But this is a very interesting and a benchmark bond issued in CLP for sustainability purposes. So I think that benchmark is very important because uh, the private sector and the private financial sector can continue working together and it opens new, new doors. So that, that was a very positive development, not only for Chile, but for Latin American markets. Martin also elaborated on some ISC initiatives, such as Blue Finance. The other main area um, that the region needs to be addressing more is in the area of sustainability. Uh, how to, to grow uh, the economy in a sustainable way, emitting fewer um, GHGs, and protecting from you know, the, the effects of climate change in terms of high, increasing number of weather events, stronger weather events. So IFC and the World Bank Group have made important commitments to increasing the amount of lending and investing we do in, in uh, climate. 35% is our target. Last year, actually in the Latin America and Caribbean region, we achieved a level of 47% which I think reflects the effort we've made, but I think also the effort that many companies and, and countries in the region are making to, to address climate change, whether it's mitigation or adaptation. Several years ago, we helped uh, three banks, Colombia, the Vivienda, and Galicia Bank issue their first green bonds um, so that the funds that were raised could be di directed toward projects, lending to projects that those banks were funding that were classified as, as green. One of the big challenges that the financial sector faces is knowing what is a, a green project, what is a sustainable project. And we help banks with that taxonomy. And, and, and what is, I don't know if you can elaborate it, because I think it's quite interesting as in the industry there are no, let, let's say, not standards. So I think it's, it's uh, interesting to see if uh, you have developed a specific taxonomy, as you said. Yeah. So we are helping companies develop, the banks and, and companies develop their own structured approach and classification and categorization. Um, but we're also helping countries. So we, we helped the, the government of Colombia develop their green taxonomy for the financial sector. We're helping the countries across Central America, the financial supervisors, develop a green taxonomy. What is a green taxonomy? <laughs> a green taxonomy defines the types of subprojects that qualify as green, as addressing climate change. Most people would understand a renewable energy project, wind, solar, hydro, is a green project because it doesn't emit greenhouse gas emissions. <clears throat> there are other types of green projects that could be decarbonization of manufacturing processes to reduce the amount of energy used mm -hmm. to produce something. Um, they could be related to water use. And when we talk about water use, we get into the classification of blue bonds, mm -hmm. which in a way is a subset of, of green from the climate perspective. And blue bonds 
uh, we're helping uh, in Ecuador Banco Internacional issue the first blue bond in, in Latin America that would target the use of resources to aquaculture, to fishing, to improving the supply chain of food for the aquaculture industry. Blue bonds could also support uh, water um, um, treatment facilities. It could re support projects that reduce the use of water in manufacturing processes. So the taxonomies classify and categorize, so they give credibility to investors in the bonds who are asking more and more that the paper that the investor buys represents sustainable investing by the issuer. And, and so this is the importance of having a taxonomy, having auditing of what banks are doing or certification of the sub-projects. And this is what is starting to, to develop. I've been impressed here at uh, Falaban on how many banks I've talked to already have a very robust uh, sustainability strategy. Others are coming up the learning curve and, and wanting to know how they can uh, develop more sustainable uh, financing for for their clients. And, and, and when banks start to know what a sustainable project is, green, blue, they can help their clients design the mm -hmm. projects. And, and so it's across the system from investors who want sustainable uh, use of their funds to the entities that then are lending, helping the real sector design projects. So it's a whole ecosystem that's developing now, um, and all parts of it are important. Carla also spoke about the role of financial institutions in financing this transition. We see that transition into a low-carbon model and adopting a sustainable framework involves two things. First is to work on your own emissions. That would be a scope one, two, and a scope three emissions that relate to the financing, uh, finance emissions and involves your clients. Uh, so this is, uh, this is something that we, uh, as banks in general, and we see our clients actively discussing and learning from each other and comparing experiences and know-how, and this is going to be a very important process in the future. Uh, in this space, I would say TD um, was the first largest Canadian bank actually announcing um, uh, the commitment to disclose interim resorts in scope three emissions by 2030. Um, and, and we have active discussions in terms of how to, how to share uh, know-how and how to work together with our clients facilitating that, that type of transition and commitment. Um, many clients are discussing which is the best way to go in terms of mitigating emissions. So a portion of emissions we were able to reduce, but also a portion will have to be mitigated. There are instruments in the market. Um, so one of our clients was considering to make an investment, for example, in sustainable bonds uh, or, or to buy carbon credits in the voluntary trading market. Um, but um, maybe the reflection has been also around how to support um, initiatives in the domestic markets, initiatives that are oriented to actually generating value and positive environmental and socioeconomic outcomes in their specific economies. Thanks everyone for tuning in and please check our website at thebanker.com to listen to the other episode of the Talk of Palabank.